Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. My partner of seven years is a love, a sex, love, and porn addict. We were living together when I first made my first discovery in May of 2020, and I finally realized he's an addict in December of 2020 after more discoveries and voluntary disclosures. Given the duration, depth, and breadth of his addiction, I asked him to move out to keep me safe, which he did, and we're no longer having any sexual contact. He admits he has an addiction to porn and agreed to seek treatment, and up to this point has attended two regular therapy appointments. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated at the lack of progress and wondering what to do next. I've been educating myself and getting help from a CSAT and joined a betrayal partners group. Aside from his addiction and the havoc it wreaks, we are happy as a couple and want to stay together. From a pro-dependent perspective, will you please provide some healthy examples of what additional boundaries I should consider putting in place? Okay, so let me quickly explain pro-dependence really quickly. Pro-dependence is about the partner. It's about if you need to detach for yourself and take care of yourself, that's what you need to do. And if you need to stay close and really help and be supportive for yourself and the situation, that's what you need to do. But nobody says in, in, in um, no one says, and I wrote it in pro-dependence, you have to stick by someone's side no matter what. I mean, if they hit you or they're violating your beliefs and they refuse to respond to you, I wouldn't be hanging around. I think it's out of your love for them and yourself that you say, I can't do this. But that's very different. Prodependence, a book I wrote uh, to counter codependency, simply says that you're there because you love them and you might need to move away from them, but it's not because there's something wrong with you and you won't grow until you detach. It's more about, I need to move away from the situation because it's so damaging to me in the present or because... I, you know, this person is not being helped by my being around. They're just, you know, whatever that is. So first, you know, it really is, prodependence is about supporting the partner into all of your choices are good ones because you love this person and you want the best from it. There's nothing wrong with you, but you haven't victimized and harmed by this situation and you need to do whatever it is to take care of yourself. As opposed, again, codependency is more like you'll never grow while you stay close to this person. I think you can grow either way, but you got to keep yourself safe. And I wanted to preface that question with by saying that because what I'm hearing here, Tammy, is this person kind of saying, well, if I come from a perspective of love and connection and, you know, why would I do anything stronger or how can I set a boundary from that perspective? And a couple of things I think are in there. I'm sorry to delay this. It's a very long question. So first of all, frustrated with this lack of progress. Um, I would be too. I think there's a lot of partners who are frustrated because in the beginning, many addicts will give lip service. You know, it's like, well, I'll do this meeting. I'll go to a couple of therapy sessions. I'll read this book and maybe that'll shut her up or get me back in where I want to get into or impress her or him in some way. So just because someone agrees to it, that they're seeking some kind of treatment and have attended to a couple of meetings. Oh, by the way, they, they had that book, Sex Addiction 101, that I wrote, I think it's over 200 pages. So I don't think he's gotten very far considering this happened in December. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I am feeling a sense of frustration because I feel like you are tolerating things that are not good for you. No matter how much you love someone, you don't want to be around when they're hurting you. And so, and I have to say something else, and I really mean this with all love and respect. You say, we are, aside from this, basically, we're happy as a couple and we want to stay together. Well, I, oh, I want you to stay together too. 
All the work that Tammy and I do, I think, is with a strong belief that people who have underlying solid relationships aside from this, we want you to work them out. But the, if you can, but that doesn't mean that, um, what did I want to say here? Let me see it. Uh, oh, that doesn't mean you're, how do I say this? I talked to a couple recently is the best way I can say it. And they said, oh my God, our relationship is so happy. We enjoy ourselves so much. It's just that he's seen, you know, 40 sex workers and, you know, seen all these affairs and, and you know, went to strip clubs. And other than that, when I didn't know about that, we had a great relationship. It's just not true because this person you love was not fully there in your relationship. They took their anger, their frustration, their unhappiness, and they took it to other people. They took their needfulness for attention and validation, and they let you get the superficial, and they went over here for the distraction. So I don't think, all due respect, I don't think all the love you talk about could be there because I think you're too close to see this person. And ultimately, we want to see the people that we love as better than they are. But it sounds like your partner is a little more troubled than you'd like to see him. And I would also like to suggest that happiness um, happiness is not uh, experienced when there's not a lack of integrity. The reason that we named our treatment program Seeking Integrity is I believe that couples and individuals can only be happy when all the cards are on the table and you're seeing the whole person as they are. So maybe you saw the happy, fun partner that you experienced, but you didn't experience the whole person. And so, you know, I'll say this again, one more thing. I've worked with a lot of couples. How do I say this? Here's something they say about therapy. Sometimes it feels worse before it gets better. You know, therapy will bring up things that make you feel bad and you leave some days and you're like, oh my God, why did I go? But over time, it helps you put together pieces that will help you grow for sure. And so what I would say is for couples who are feeling like, oh, we love each other and everything's great, except two months ago, I found out this person's ruined my life. I would say that you might need to question the way that you look at happiness and connection for the two of you. It may well be that some things are lacking and maybe because you're so close together, you can't see it. Tammy, you're nodding your head, so I know you're in the group. I am. Well, I was like, oh, this feels so compartmentalized on both sides, quite frankly. So, like, I, I really, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you set the healthy boundary for he moved out. But, yeah, his lack of progress, 90 days during COVID, I'm sorry, what else are you going to do? You're going to engage in recovery with as much energy as you engaged in the acting out and, and Dr. Robs and sex addiction one-on-one is not a hard read. It's not like war and peace. This is 200 pages, but it's not that difficult. We even have a class. He could have completed three times, uh, no, tw twice. He two. could have completed. Yeah. The January or February level one sex and porn addiction one-on-one course. We have one starting April 7th. Um, but, but those are online 60 minutes, every week or 90 minutes every week, uh, six weeks to gu guide through, have a facilitator walk through the sex addiction one-on-one uh, -on -one workbook. It's not that hard, you know, and two therapy appointments in three months. I mean, like if he had two therapy appointments a week, that would be like, maybe, you know, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. So, so I, what I hear is, but you're, so let's go back to her specific question is what additional boundaries should I consider putting into place? So let, that's well, I know a great what question. I, I know what I would do. I would say until I see the kind of progress that makes me feel safe, not that you need to do for you, but that makes me feel safe. I don't want to talk to you outside of therapy or I don't want you to text me or email me. If I feel like reaching out to you, I will. Some people need to change the locks. Really, I will tell you in, uh, and I think we have five guys in treatment right now at the center, Tammy, and I think all of them are married and every one of them would have come in and said, I'm here to save my relationship. So trust me, 
and and even if one wasn't married, they'd be there because they want to save a relationship with their workers. It's all about our relationships that we want to protect and take care of in the end. And so the threat of the loss of your happy relationship should motivate this person to want to get better. Now, I have to say, and I'll just say to you, honestly, he, you've been apart for a year and a half or what is it? How long? December 2020 wasn't that long ago. So how long have they been not living together? God, there's 16 questions. I have to finish one. It's a good one. I know. So they've not been living together since December. Okay. So that's only a couple of months. So, I mean, you're, first of all, this is just the beginning of a process, but the less progress I see, the less engaged I would be. Ooh, I like that. The less progress you see, the less engaged you should be because progress is what makes you feel safe and makes you feel safe around your family. It's really not up to this person to decide what choices you make for yourself. Um, there. Okay. So 19 let's to go. go. Yes. Okay. So so next is, is porn and sex addiction always a progressive illness if the addict doesn't get help? I know everyone is different, but are there stages that the progression generally happens? My uh, porn addicted sex addiction ended our marriage last March. We've been separated. He told me he would wait to file divorce until our daughter graduated college this May. Instead, he blindsided me today with divorce papers as I was walking out the door to pick up our daughter from college. His father passed away a month ago and he seems to be getting worse. I'm shocked that he didn't even seem to think about dropping off the papers right before I was getting our daughter. Oh, so Tammy, I want to remind you of something that happened to us today, you and me. You and I had an email from a 70, from someone who's writing about her 72-year-old dad who was compulsively viewing porn. And I don't think there's any stage at, with, at which people are too late to the table. But the other reason I said that is because I've seen people who had a problem in their 50s and it escalated so badly in their 70s that they came to treatment because they still wanted to be with their grandkids. Does everyone escalate? Yes, but in different ways. Some people escalate to something happening more often. Some people escalated, escalate to uh, having less and less time and focus on their lives and more and more being upset with themselves and also doing that. Some people escalate by looking at deeper and deeper and more problematic behavior. You know, first they look at vanilla porn and then they look at be, you know, more and before they know it, they're into things that they didn't expect. So I do think the more you're active in that lifestyle, the more likely it is that either you're going to end up further along than you thought, or you're going to run into someone who's going to drag you into the pit. And just to say it, I don't know your spouse at all, your life circumstances, but I know a lot of people who started out seeing sex workers and ended up as drug addicts <laughs> because the part the you know, I, and guys in their fifties, try a little of this, try a little of that. Oh, honey, I really love you. And before you know it, they're doing a lot of drugs. And those are the guys we see at times, those 50 year olds who come in doing drugs and struggling with sex. So anyway, I would, trust your concerns. Oh, and one more thing. This guy's crazy. Like why are, no offense, but why are you even worrying about him when he gave you divorce papers as you were going to your daughter's? I mean, the whole thing is just, um, I don't use, want to use the bad language that I thought of some kind of show, but if it, okay, one more thing. You said his father passed away a month ago and he seems to be getting worse. And my response to it is, what do you care? You know, I understand you might have deep and longing connection from the past, but this person is on a self-destructive path and they don't seem to have any regard for you, your feelings or their child. So, you know, and it's, in fact, I'll tell you one more thing and you want to hear it. I have a feeling that this is our, this person's already moved on to someone else. You're getting these divorce papers for a reason. He said he would do it later, but all of a sudden he wants to do it now. And so, and May is a while from now. So I'm thinking, no offense, but I know 
I know my clients. He's found somebody. That person has said, well, why are you still married or whatever? And he's decided to push it forward. So, um, so yeah, that's my response. I don't know, Tammy, do you have something else? No, I, I, I give your daughter a hug. You've got the daughter. That's, that's, you know, that's what I was thinking. So, okay. I am a spouse and am confused about which version of my essay is a true self. We married before his addiction took over. Did I marry the mask, the false self? Then when the addiction took over, he turned into his real self. When the mask fell away, meaning he is essentially a bad person. Oh, I hate when people say addicts are bad people. So I'm going to, I'm going to point that out. It's like, I don't think we're bad people. I think we're broken people. Um, uh, but having good and bad and moralistic, um, I really struggled with that. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to look at it as, wow, somebody's really, you know, like we were talking about has progressive disease. So, you know, is somebody with cancer, a bad person, you know, do we choose poorly? Absolutely. Do we hurt lots of people? Absolutely. But we can do it differently. So I'll shut up. What do you think, Dr. Rob? No, I agree, Tammy. And I don't take it personally, but you and I are both addicts. And I know that with a lot of support and, and the right direction, we have grown to be better people. But that doesn't mean we were, weren't good people who were doing bad things. You have to understand, every person I work with has trauma. Every person I work with has profound abuse. Every man I work with was neglected. All of us, including myself, had a shit show as a childhood. There, I said that word. I may say it all the time. Um, so from my perspective, because this isn't someone who hurt me, um, this is a very broken person who has missed out on life because they're escaping into something over here and they're missing the most important thing in life, which is home and family and connection. So what is he doing? He is actually running away from the thing that would bring him the most uh, help, support and love and stability. That's not bad. That's crazy. So I often said to my, well, I won't say this to guys to you, but let, our clients, me, uh, I'm not a client right now, but trust me, we have issues. Uh, and I'll say this, I cannot treat a bad person. I cannot turn a bad person into a good person. I have no magic wand. This is not Harry Potter and I can't do that. But I can turn a broken person into someone who is stronger and more self-aware and more available. So I think we both have strong feelings about that because you can't grow from being a bad person. I'm sorry, sorry. Bad people go to prison. You know, broken people get help and get better. Now you may not want to love this person in this situation and I could understand that, but someone else will. Uh, some of us like broken people that are already on the road to recovery. Okay. The other thing I want to say about, there's so many questions in these questions, Tammy. I don't think I'm like, did I drink too much coffee? I feel like I'm going. You're, just keep going. You're doing great. Okay. At least I remember things. Um, so what, the other thing I want to tell you is I think what hurts the spouses that are been through this for a while is I thought I knew him. I thought I knew or her. I thought I knew all about them. I thought when we got together, we would tell each other endless stories about everything. I mean, I knew they wouldn't hide anything from me. And when we met with the, with the premarital counseling and they said, is there anything you want to share with each other? You know, I, I knew we would have said it, but, but understand there's a whole part of this person you don't know. Almost all the guys I work with and some of the women knew profoundly knew that there was something not right about intimacy, relationships, connection. Any guy at Seeking Integrity will tell you with, with a little bit of shove that he knew he had issues long before he met his partner on some level. Uh, I think I knew when I was 12, really, um, on some level. So um, what was I going to say? I see I did lose my memory. Hold on a second. Um, okay. So I think there's always been a mouse. And what I would tell you is many of the men I work with deliberately hide things about themselves that we don't want you to see because we're afraid you won't marry us. And we're afraid we won't want to live with us. And we're afraid you will leave us. And we love you. So we just leave parts out. 
And I think this is one of the most painful things of the spouse is, especially, you know, well, under many circumstances is um, two things. One is if I'd known about this, I would have helped you. I would have, we could have worked on this together. Had you let me know 20 years ago, you know? And the other thing is, how dare you ask me to marry you and live with me all those years without telling me who you really are? And how come I didn't have a choice about who I married because you left this whole part out? So um, a little of this, a little of that, but uh, number one, we're not bad. And number two, part of us is masked our whole lives until we get well. And it isn't just sex addiction. It doesn't matter which form of addiction. We're all masks. I mean, like that, that is, it helps us compartmentalize and not have to show you the real us. So for ourselves, really true. Okay. This one, I'm not sure about. Mm. Can you comment on the horrible event that took place? Okay. That took place in Atlanta last week in the person in custody stating he's a sex addict and was taking care of temptation. So so I just want to say, I spoke to the Washington Post about these. I've been called about the Wall Street Journal. We're writing blogs and podcasts. So um, Tammy, how far do you want me to go? Because I know we have a lot of people. Do you want the quick, quick version of this? Um, you tell me. Take a few minutes. So, yeah. Okay. So if I said, and I see no difference in this way of thinking, you know, I've been an alcoholic for a while and I hate my alcoholism. So I went to a bar and I shot up everybody there. That's exactly what happened here. Uh, I have a gambling problem and I went to the casino and I shot all the casino cat. That's, that's a very primitive way of thinking which deeply disturbed mentally ill people suffer from. Sex addicts are not deeply mentally ill. We have extreme and profound trauma in early life that we are acting out in adult life. And addicts do lots of things to hurt people, but we rarely hit people. We rarely, we will rage, but we're not, some of us are, but most of us are not openly aggressive. And second of all, just because I drink, I don't kill people. Just because I compulsively gamble, I don't kill people. If the man is a sex addict, which may well be true, he's also crazy. <laughs> he's also psychotic. He's also schizophrenic. He's, and by the way, early 20s in men is when you start to see mania and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So I would imagine this man was having a psychotic break. He was not seeing reality clearly. And this is what happens in these cases. People like this hate themselves for their sexual behavior. They hate what they're doing, as many of us do. And in this case, this man have a very strong religious background. So that gave him more reasons to hate himself. And he was crazy. So sometimes people who are really troubled will say, it isn't my fault, it's theirs. And that's a way to feel better. I'll give you a simple example. I worked with a client a number of years ago. He was out at a store and uh, he was trying really hard to recovery. And he came into our group therapy like an hour after he went shopping. And he said, I'm so angry. Why are you angry? Because there was this woman at the store and she was wearing such a short skirt and a halter. How could she dress like that when I'm trying so hard to recover? It's that kind of thinking. It's that I don't want to look at myself for how troubled and unhappy I am. So if I'm also mentally ill, it's easy to say, oh, if I just got rid of all those sex workers, I wouldn't have a problem anymore, rather than I am the source of the problem because someone who's that troubled would not be able to tolerate that. Um, And I'll say one thing more. Well, I won't say that. Never mind. I'll leave it to the newspapers. But I deeply feel that um, my entire experience in 35 years uh, working with these issues and 25 years of being licensed at any clinician I've ever spoken to, uh, ever tells me that uh, this man had a much more profound problem than an addiction. And by the way, if someone comes into a treatment center with gambling or sex or alcohol, whatever it is, and they are schizophrenic or and they are bipolar or and they have a major mental health disorder, we have to deal with that first. 
they're not thinking clearly. They're not present. They're going to do all kinds of crazy things because they're crazy. And once we stabilize crazy, like really crazy, then we can get into the day by day, moment by moment crazy that defines addiction. How was that? Excellent. I'm going to leave it at there. So, okay. Absolutely. The next question, I'm a 42-year-old single gay man. In your Sex Addiction 101 book, you address sexual arousal template. As I wrote down my sexual history, I see a pattern of finding people who want to hurt me physically or give me STDs. Is this permanently in my sexual arousal template? Can it be changed? Okay, well, first of all, I wrote a book for you. And that book is called Cruise Control. Maybe if Tammy wouldn't mind dropping it in there. It's called Cruise Control, uh, Understanding Sex Addiction in Gay Men. It was my second book. It was revised just a few years ago because of meth and marriage and uh, apps. I had to revise it. But in any case, um, I wrote a book about being a gay man who's trying to achieve sexual recovery in gay culture. Because if you're in gay male culture, it's very much trying to get sober around sex is like trying to get sober around alcohol if you work in a bar. You know, everyone's drinking, everyone looks fine. So in, this, in the gay world, lots of people are having sex in ways they wouldn't in the straight world. And that's fine with all everyone, except if you have a problem. And then it's hard to know what is a problem and what is what everybody's doing. So that wasn't your question, but I want to say that is why I wrote Cruise Control. And I get 12 cents for every book that I wrote. Publishers get the rest. So I ain't making all the money if you buy a book. But this will really help you. The other piece that you actually ask about. So I would just say this. It's funny. I used to say to myself, I don't know if I'm depressed and that makes me sexually act out or am I sexually acting out and then it makes me depressed. I spent years thinking about that without doing anything about it, by the way. It was a wonderful question that didn't solve any problems. So, you know, we could say that you hate yourself so much about what you're doing and the places you're doing it, that you don't give a shit about yourself and you don't care what people do to you. Um, I know lots of people, they feel so insecure, so badly about themselves, and then what they're doing reinforces it, or maybe that they're single at 42 and haven't found someone. They feel so awful that it engages sexual behavior that reflects how they feel about themselves on some level. There are other people who grow up with, as you said, arousal templates that might involve pain or humiliation. or, And you know, I would say to you that uh, we do not discriminate against fetish, and I don't think that a fetish like BDSM has anything to do with an addiction. I think it's a separate issue, but I do think you have to stop the addiction in order to be able to figure that out. You know, when I stop running to dark places for sex uh, and I give myself some time out and I get support um, or I come to treatment at Seeking Integrity, whatever works for you, um, you know, gay leadership tends to help with gay issues. Although I say 95% of people come are straight because 95% of the world is straight. But in any case, that's, that's a separate issue. Um, the answer is, I don't, you will not be able to know, but a lot of people do enjoy some form of humiliation as a part of sex, and, but that doesn't mean they're seeing 100 people, they're getting STDs. So your interest in, let's say, humiliation as a form of arousal is very different than running out and having sex with 100 people and getting STDs. If you start to separate those issues, first work on the thing that's most harmful, which is I'm getting STDs and I could get a disease or I could get a rest, whatever that is. And then we can tape a step back when all that craziness is gone to say, gee, I wonder why that part of sex interests me. Right now, I think it's too soon to have an answer. Okay, next question. I'm doing all the work, been clean for three and a half months, and I've been, I'm being honest about my whereabouts constantly, going to three support meetings a month in a 12-step group, doing my steps, have a sponsor, keeping in touch with several guys on the boards, seeing a therapist, doing disclosure and timeline, going through um, said timeline in April, my therapist with her. 
I don't see a question in there. I'm just There's no question that. in there. Although okay. I would have to say, just to say it, Tammy, that if I were, I, the question I expected was, why hasn't my girlfriend, wife, boyfriend, whatever, realized how hard I'm working and really supported me? And, you know, I've done all these things. That, that would be my expectation for this question. But um, tell you what, uh, maybe, I don't think we can answer this. Uh, your initials are CE. So if we see CE oh, come up in the, oh, oh, there's more. So there's more. Um, uh, didn't see how to change my name, LOL, doing all the work yet. So this is from a male yet. She still doesn't think I'm doing enough uh, just yet right. watching podcasts and groups. We read together. How do I can, how do I convince her I'm doing the work and being honest? Tammy, am I a swami when I say I knew what the yeah. rest of that question yeah, was? Or go. is it the yeah. question that every man asks when he's three and a month and a half months sober? Or yeah, and I'm I'm going to three support meetings a month is like, I mean, I was going oh, to- Oh, why do you talk to, about that? Yeah, I was going to say, I was going, and this was, I'm sorry, but back in the olden days when there were less meetings, I was going to 10 meetings a week, you know? And you I have mean, to get every in your car. Week. I, you had to get in your car and go and like, you know what? I had time because I wasn't doing all the other things I was doing. So, so to me, um, three support meetings a month in a 12 step group, doing my steps. That's good. And working with a sponsor. That's great. Um, read out of the doghouse. That's how you like that. Like those are how you are never going to, if your lips are moving, you're never going to be able to convince her. It's your actions, 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 speak louder than words. You know, what you do, you know, uh, have a chart up on the fridge of here's where I'm going. Here's what I'm doing. And there, I would hope would be multiple things every day of what you're doing in your recovery work. If you have not joined the sex addiction one-on-one work group yet, um, again, it starts April 7th. It's online six weeks, 90 minutes a session. It's constructed to, I mean, it's facilitated, moderated, you know, going through the workbook. It's, it's really helpful. So, so just, it's what you do, not anything. You are not going to be able to convince her. It's going to take her time because you've lied for however long. So it's going to be like, okay, you're showing up. You're actually doing the things that you say to do, but I, I'd up it more on the, on the meetings and I'm glad you're here. Hopefully you both are. And I would add something to that, which is, um, something that I say to every man and woman who's three months into recovery is in a relationship. Um, I think you're a little clueless about oh, the harm you cause. three support meetings a week. That's actually better. Thank you. Okay. So. Let me just, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I don't care. No, no, it's okay. No offense. Uh, that's better. But I don't care if you're going to 30, 12 step meetings a week and doing absolutely fabulously. We'll never touch anyone appropriately, uh, you know, uh, anyone that shouldn't again. The issue is your impatience with your partner's process. The reason I wrote out of the doghouse um, was because I spent at that time, I'd spent 19 years working with men who had betrayed women and guys, we don't get it. We're like flowers, candy. It's been a few months. Why aren't you over it? I'm tired of seeing that angry face. Look at all I'm doing. And that ain't it. We have for a long time convinced our partners that what we said was true. We made them believe things that weren't true. We you know, blew up their minds, I mean, on so many levels. And now we expect them to somehow believe that we're getting better. Um, my, if you listen to one of my lectures or you read the book, um, and again, I'm not trying to sell books. This is, this is what I do. I, I wrote the only book for men to understand what they do to women when they betray them. I don't think there's another one that could be more clearly laid out. I wrote the only book on gay men and sex addiction. I'm not trying to toot my horn. It's just that that's a reality. So when I recommend the stuff I've written, it's because I've done the work, I understand the work, and I've put it out there. The reason Tammy mentioned Out of the Doghouse is because it, it speaks more to realistic expectations of someone you've hurt. Men think of betrayal in a very different way than women do. 
Um, and it takes us a lot longer to figure out what the problem is. If it was flowers and candy and jewelry and taking you on vacation to make you feel better, um, it would be much easier. And you might be able to do that if you, I don't know, uh, if you, uh, I don't know, if you um, lost your job and you're feeling terrible, or your spouse lost their job and you're feeling terrible, give them flowers and take them on a vacation, you know, make them feel better. But this is about, as Tammy said, a change in attitude, a change in uh, behavior, and there is nothing you can do to reassure your partner. What you can do is work on yourself. As Tammy said, let them know what you're doing so they feel like, okay, I can rely on something. Oh, by the way, you better, you better not have any more secrets. You better not be all, uh, once in a while acting out because the, as you continue the behavior, if you expect your partner to ever get better, if they find out anything else, anything, and if you're lying, they will find it. Then they'll never then they'll never be able to forgive you because every partner who's been lied to multiple times thinks, oh, this is it, I can handle this. This is it, I can handle this. And by the third one, they're like, I can't handle this. You know, they just looking for what is the foundation of the problem, and we don't give it to them. So another suggestion would be see a therapist who is engaged in this particular work because they're going to help you find your way into the couple's piece you need to do. And about three months in is a good time. Um, and Tammy, if you want to write to Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingrecovery.com, she will, as we oh, do, seeking always give you- Seekingintegrity.com. Oh, I'm sorry, seeking, I'm seeking recovery at seeking, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com. Uh, we Correct. don't get cutbacks for our referrals, but we do know a lot of really good people. You say you're seeing a therapist. I wonder if you're seeing a therapist who understands betrayal, sexual violation, sex addiction, and what partners go through. Because if you're not seeing a specialist, and I'm not trying to sell people's practices, um, it's like having cancer and going to your, you know, your general practitioner. They're going to want to help. They might give you something for the pain, but they're not going to understand exactly what it takes to help a couple get through this. Uh, that's what we do in treatment. That's what people do in the right kind of therapy. And I hope you're able to find it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.